Luke 1, 26 to 33. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Hebrews 11, 1 through 6. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for, and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before... He was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. I want to thank the Breggs for doing double duty today. So appreciate that. Well, we begin our series called Christmas Classics, Finding Advent in the Big Screen. And we begin with a movie that received five Academy Awards, uh, was voted uh, by the American Film Institute as being in uh, the top ten most inspirational films of all time. I'm talking about, of course, Miracle on 34th Street. How many of you have actually seen this movie? Okay, a lot of you. How many of you have seen the uh, original, 1947? Okay, wonderful, wonderful movie. I confess to you, I'm, I'm a latecomer to this movie, but it really is just great. Uh, in a few minutes, we're going to show a few clips from the 1947 original uh, film. It really teaches us some things about real Christmas, not R-E-E-L, but R-E-A-L, the real Christmas. And first of all, and most foundationally, it teaches us that the real Christmas calls us to have faith. Now, what do I mean by that? Really, the general plot in the movie involves someone with a lack of faith. <clears throat> it's Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, 1947. Uh, the gentleman who is supposed to be uh, Santa Claus on the float is, for lack of a better term, uh, more on the snockered end of things, and, and he's not being a good Santa. And Doris Walker, who is in charge of this, removes him and finds a man who looks the part so well and his name happens to be Chris Kringle. And so she asks him if he would be Santa Claus for the remainder of the parade. And he's, of course I will, because I am Santa Claus. And she's like, yeah, okay. But he does it and does it so well that she hires him on to be Santa Claus, <clears throat> excuse me, at Macy's department store. And how many, any, how many have been to Macy's, by the way? If you, okay, a lot of you. Well, that's where a lot of the movie takes place, is at Macy's, the huge department store in New York City. Now, Doris does not believe that he is Santa Claus. Chris Kringle believes that he is Santa Claus. Doris does not. You come to understand why she's sort of a jaded, cynical person. Her husband had left her. She went through a very painful divorce, and now she's a single mom. And she's kind of lost her faith in, in love and in hope 
and really in faith itself. And so she kind of teaches that in a way, whether directly or indirectly, to her daughter whose name is Susan. And little Susan does not believe in Santa Claus either. But here's the mom who's jaded in heart. But she also makes this decision based on logic and rational deduction. She's a very commonsensical kind of person. And that represents a lot of us here, even in this place. We are taught to see the world that way. You know, you view things from the basis of deductive, rational, logical thinking. However, you have another character in the movie whose name is Fred Gailey, and he is a lawyer who is interested in Doris. There's a love interest there. And, and he does think logically, but he thinks more than merely logically. He, he's, he's intent on knowing truth, but he knows that logical truth has a deeper sense of things. There's more truth than you can simply deduce in your mind. There's truth that is deeper. It's truth that really comes from the heart. He understands that there is heart Head knowledge and heart knowledge. And they really go together and work together. Both are important. You know, rational common sense alone can't help us tap into things like faith and hope and love, especially. I read something recently in a science journal where the scientist said that really when you ever have a surge of love towards someone, just you ever had that surge of feeling of love towards somebody, that it's really just oxytocin washing over a particular part of your brain. I'm not going to use that next Valentine's Day with Deanna, by the way. I'm not going to use that line. Uh, But we know that faith and hope and love, to quote uh, the Apostle Paul, in and of themselves often don't make sense. They're really irrational. And neither does the gospel always make sense. Think about this Christmas story that was just read a moment ago. It's not rational. There's no common sense to it. Let's review in chapter 1 of Luke, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 or excuse me, 26 through 28, I should say. It says, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. How can this be? This lacks common sense. For one thing, I'm a virgin. She even asked the question, how can this be? It goes beyond rational thought. And Luke himself always wrote from the perspective of head and heart knowledge. And he was a brilliant guy. Uh, Luke was the brightest of the gospel writers. What did he do for a living? Help me. He's a doctor, he was a physician. Very, very learned, very, very eloquent the way he writes. Let's look at the beginning of Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Just You can tell how articulate he is. This is how he begins the whole gospel. Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning... I also have decided to write a careful account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. If you compare that to the gospel of Mark, Mark just says, here's the gospel, and he gets going. Luke is very learned. He's obviously a bright intellectual guy, but he wrote from the perspective of rational thought and personal experience. And to really experience truth, you have to have both. Do you believe with your head and with your heart? Sometimes believing with your heart is more difficult for some people, which is why I think the author of Psalm 14.1 says what? Only fools say in their hearts, there is no God. 
You really have to have both. I always think of Francis Collins, who wrote a wonderful book called The Language of God. Anybody read The Language of God? Francis Collins is a fascinating fellow, uh, was the head of the uh, Human Genome Project in the early 2000s, uh, is now director of the National Institutes of Health. He is a geneticist, one of the most brilliant people in America, and has received all kinds of awards, including the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Brilliant, brilliant man, a devout scientist and also a devout man of faith, head and heart. And I love how he puts it so uh, basically, and and I love that we were singing a moment ago, sorry, uh, we had almost a Trinitarian song that we sang. I believe in the Father, I believe in the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit, I believe in the crucifixion, I believe in the resurrection. And he kind of applies this to music. Look, look at what he says. Faith is reason plus revelation. And the revelation part requires one to think with the spirit as well as with the mind. You have to hear the music, not just read the notes on the page. Isn't that great? That's a be- beautiful way of understanding both in our minds, the words about faith, but really the music of faith as well in our hearts. I think that's beautifully put. And to really have true credibility in terms of your thinking about truth, I think you have to have both, reason and revelation, mind and heart. Theologian Norm Geisler put it this way, God is not asking you to take a blind leap of faith into the darkness. He's asking you to take a reasonable step of faith into the light to believe in the incarnation of Jesus, God becoming flesh, the atoning death of Jesus on the cross, bodily resurrection, all of that is a a reasonable step of faith, not into the dark, but into the light. Hebrews 11.1 puts it well, and I love the old Revised Standard Version of it. Now, faith is the assurance of things, hope for the conviction of things not seen. What that's saying is faith is not naively trusting in the impossible, it's wisely trusting in the invisible. So have you engaged your mind and your heart when it comes to your faith in the Christ story? You know, the real Christmas calls us to have faith, but it calls us to have something else as well. It calls us to sacrifice, to sacrifice. Now, in the movie, uh, Chris Kringle starts to become a little frustrated because of the commercialization of Christmas. I'd even thought, I'm going to confess something, I'd even thought about showing a funny clip from uh, a Black Friday at, at Walmart I decided not to. I just got depressed. But anyway, uh, but Chris Kringle is getting frustrated <clears throat> with the same thing. And here's a scene where the manager is telling him how to sell things, even if they don't have them there in the store, and diverting their attention. And he's just realizing, look, Christmas is all about giving of the self, being selfless, and all you're concerned about is selfishness. Let's watch this clip. Before you go on the floor, I just want to give you a few tips on how to be a good Santa Claus. Go right ahead. Well, here's a list of toys that we have to push, you know, (laughs) things that we're overstocked on. Now, you'll find that a great many children will be undecided as to what they want for Christmas. When that happens, you immediately suggest one of these items. You understand? I certainly do. (laughs) Good. Now, you memorize that list and I'll... I'll tell you, when you've finished, come up to the seventh floor. I'll be waiting for you. Imagine, making a child take something it doesn't want just because he bought too many of the wrong toys. That's what I've been fighting against for years, the way they commercialize Christmas. Yeah, there's a lot of bad isms floating around this world, but one of the worst is commercialism. Make a buck, make a buck. Even in Brooklyn, it's the same. Don't care what Christmas stands for. Just make a buck, make a buck. 
Oh, oh don't bother. I'll put it away for you. Huh? Oh, thank you, Alfred. And what should I do with these? Throw them on a the floor. I get kind of tired just sweeping up dust. Uh -huh. Thanks. Yeah, thank you, Alfred. Okay, Chris is frustrated because they're wanting to make a buck off of the people that if the toy is not available there, you direct them to a different one and try to persuade them to get a different toy. You know what he winds up doing in the movie, though? He starts, when people come up to him and say, oh, we were hoping for this toy, but Macy's doesn't have it, he will say, well, you know, it's down at this store or that store, and he sends them away. The manager finds out about this, and he freaks out. He's saying, that's not what you're supposed to be doing, but Chris said, I've got to do that because I am Santa Claus. And they think that he's crazy because of how self-giving he is, because of how selfless he is. It's irrational to be that way. And so they send in Chris Kringle for a psychiatric evaluation, as you know. And, and it's a great scene because it looks like, really, he's really putting them on, on display and, and evaluating them instead of vice versa. But they decide that he's crazy. And so they're discerning whether or not they need to institutionalize him, put him in a mental institution. And, and really, the rest of the movie is, is a courtroom scene where they're deciding whether or not to put this man, Chris Kringle, who claims to be Santa Claus, into an institution. Because they think he's crazy. Well, what does that remind you of? You know, when Jesus came in the flesh down to earth and diagnosed the selfish motives and the lack of faith among the Pharisees and the Sadducees, do you remember what they said about him? What they said about him publicly. He has a demon. In other words, he's crazy. And you know what? They conspired with others to take Jesus to court. And it was found that he was not going to be merely institutionalized. He was going to be crucified because of his love for others that was so irrational, that didn't make sense. It was so countercultural. Well, fortunately for Chris Kringle, Fred Gailey, whom I mentioned earlier, decides to become his lawyer, his advocate. And he's having to give up a whole lot. He might have to leave his firm. He might have to make all these other sacrifices, but he feels like this poor soul deserves to be defendant in the uh, New York State Court. And so he decides to be... Chris Kringle's lawyer. And the rest of the movie is deciding, you know, whether or not he's going to be set free based on what these lawyers do. And it's interesting because Fred obviously has both head and heart knowledge of faith, and he believes in love and hope and the things that really matter, peace and joy. And you and I know who is the source of all of those good things. But again, his girlfriend, Doris, cannot understand why he's giving away so much, sacrificing so much on behalf of this fellow whom he's trying to defend because she is so about common sense and logic. So let's watch this next scene. He's a nice old man, and I admire you for wanting to help him. But you've got to be realistic and face facts. You can't just throw your career away because of a sentimental whim. But I'm not throwing my career away. But if Hayslip feels that way, so will every other law firm in town. I'm sure they will. Then I'll open my own office. And what kind of cases will you get? Oh, probably a lot of people like Chris that are being pushed around. That's the only fun in law anyway. And I promise you, if you believe in me and have faith in me, everything will... You don't have any faith in me, do you? It's not a question of faith, it's just common sense. Faith is believing in things when common sense tells you not to. Oh. 
Don't you see? It's not just Chris that's on trial. It's everything he stands for. It's oh, kindness Fred. and joy and love and all the other intangibles. Oh, Fred, you're talking like a child. You're living in a realistic world, and those lovely intangibles of yours are attractive but not worth very much. You don't get ahead that way. That all depends on what you call getting ahead. Evidently, you and I have different definitions. Oh, these last few days, we've talked about some wonderful plans. And then you go on an idealistic binge. You give up your job, you throw away all your security, and then you expect me to be happy about it. Yes, I guess I expected too much. Look, Doris, someday you're going to find out that your way of facing this realistic world just doesn't work. And when you do, don't overlook those lovely intangibles. You'll discover they're the only things that are worthwhile. Well, and we know that those are the things that are worthwhile. Obviously, she's struggling with that, at least at this point in the movie. But again, this seems irrational. It goes outside of the bounds of common sense. But it's about things like faith and hope and peace and love and joy. Common sense, you know, would tell us not to live as Jesus tells us to live because it involves a lot of sacrifice. Love my enemies. Pray for those who persecute me. Think about Jesus even on the cross, gasping in pain. And what's the first thing he does? He looks out at the people who are jeering at him, and what does he say? Father, what? Forgive them? To forgive people like that? To live as he does? You know, do we really have to to reach out to the disenfranchised of the world, the poor, the people who might not even appreciate at all what we do for them? Help a homeless person even if they're not going to thank us? But that's the nature of Jesus' sacrifice. It's what he did for us. Do you think you and I could ever offer enough thanks to him for what he did for us? You realize what he did. I love how it's put in Philippians chapter 2. Though he was in the form of God, he did not exploit his divinity. But what does it say? He emptied himself, becoming fully human. And not just becoming fully human, but being obedient unto God, he died for our sins. Which is why later on Paul tells us in Romans 12, what? That we should present ourselves as living, what? Anybody know? sacrifices. That calls us to be missional people. And that's the last thing I would want to say this morning is that the real Christmas makes us a missional people, not just a people of faith, not just a people of sacrifice, but people who are missional. Now, you get to the climactic scene of the whole movie. They're in court, and the judge is trying to figure out if Kris Kringle is insane. There they are in the state supreme court and, and it's fun because Fred, the lawyer, calls two witnesses. One is the DA's son, who's this innocent kid, and he's the son of the guy that he's going up against. And the son goes up there, yeah, I believe in Santa Claus. Yeah, I believe those. So it makes the DA look a little silly. And then the other person they call up is R.H. Macy, who owns Macy's department store. Well, he's not going to testify against Santa Claus. Could you imagine that? Bad for business. So great call, Mr. Lawyer. But what else could help this whole situation? The court still wants hard, concrete proof. So we get to the very end of the movie, and here's what happens. Then, Your Honor, I want to introduce these pieces of evidence. Uh, I'll take them, please. I have here three letters. They're addressed simply Santa Claus. No other address whatsoever. Yet these letters have just now been delivered to Mr. Kringle by bona fide employees of the post office. I offer them as positive proof that uh, a competent... Three letters, Your Honor, are hardly positive proof. I understand the post office receives thousands of these letters every year. I have further exhibits, Your Honor, but I hesitate to produce them. Oh, I'm sure we'll be very happy to see them. Yes, uh, yes, yes. Uh, produce them, Mr. Gailey. Uh, put them here on my desk. But, Your Honor... Put it... them here on the desk. Put them... 
Весело. One of these letters is addressed to Santa Claus. The post office has delivered them. Therefore, the post office department, a branch of the federal government, recognizes this man, Chris Kringle, to be the one and only Santa Claus. Uh, since the United States government declares this man to be Santa Claus, this court will not dispute it. Case dismissed. <laughs> Okay, let's apply that to Christ. Let's suppose there's enough evidence to render the verdict that Christ is real, that he does exist, and that he did die and rise from the dead, and because of that we can have eternal life. What do we do because of that verdict? We've got to take it to others, no doubt. Let me ask you all this. Who really is Chris Kringle? Do any of you know how we got the name, the term Chris Kringle? Anybody know? It's very interesting to study. Chris Kringle is really a contraction. Well, first of all, let me talk about this other contraction. Let me talk about Santa Claus. Santa Claus is a contraction of the name St. Nicholas. Do we have that? You can sort of see that St. Nicholas, if you kind of mash it together, that's where we got Santa Claus. But it was named after a man named St. Nicholas who was a man who really lived. And he was a saint. He was a priest, lived in the 4th century. He was the bishop of Myra in the country of Turkey. And he was from a wealthy family, grew up in a wealthy family, inherited a whole lot of money, but then he felt God calling him to the priesthood, so he took a vow not only of poverty, but of giving away most of what he had. But it's interesting how he would want to give away all that uh, money in the town of Myra. And I didn't know this for the longest time, but what he would do to try to be subtle about it is he would take some gold coins and put them in a sock, a stocking. How many of y'all know this? You put it in a sock, tie it up. And he would toss it through windows and then run off so they wouldn't see him. Or sometimes he would put them down what? Guess what? Chimney. (laughs) And the people wouldn't know where it came from, so they attributed it to a a gift from God above. Now, eventually, most of them found out who was doing it, but he still tried to do it as quietly as possible. And he gave the rest of his life to being a life of selfless love and giving in that manner. And because of that, St. Nicholas was canonized, and not only that, over the next hundreds of years, hundreds of churches were named after him. And eventually you get down to the Reformation, though, and Martin Luther, the great reformer, becomes concerned because he's noticing people uh, understanding the story of St. Nicholas, but the focus is too much on St. Nicholas and not the Christ who created St. Nicholas and taught him how to love and who died for St. Nicholas along with everybody else. And so he decided to give a new name to St. Nicholas. This is true. And he gave the name Chris Kindle. Chris Kindle. It's German for Christ child. And what he was hoping for was, well, if I I name St. Nicholas Chris Kindle and name him, in a sense, the Christ child, he's representing the Christ child, and that'll help point people beyond this man, this priest, to Christ the child, the Savior who was born in Bethlehem. And that's what we're called to do. We're called to represent the Christ child in all that we do. Christ Kindle, or Chris Kindle, became transposed into the English as Chris Kringle. That's where we get it, which I think is fascinating. And after that, uh, 
The real hope of Luther and others was that it would always be pointing to the living Christ. Do we always do that? Do you and I do that? Do we live as Chris Kindles ourselves and represent the body of Christ in reaching out to others as we should and doing so in selfless fashion for the hungry, for the thirsty, for those in prison and beyond? We're called to represent, really represent Christ on earth called to represent him in this advent i hope and pray that he would be born again in us i want to close with this quote from barbara brown taylor uh, which i think reflects this in, in a beautiful way in a sermon that she preached she said on the one hand mary was just a girl an immature and frightened girl who had the good sense to believe what an angel told her in what seemed like a dream On the other hand, she was the mother of the Son of God, with faith enough to move mountains, to sing about the victories of her son as if he were already at the right hand of his father instead of a dollop of cells in her womb. When we allow God to be born in us, there is no telling, no telling at all what will come out. May we have him born in us this day and all through Advent. Now, we're going to do this a bit differently for the invitation. I'd like for you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And we're not going to stand in a moment to uh, sing. We're just going to remain meditative and listen to the music. And uh, so remain seated through uh, this time of commitment. But let me say, uh, if you feel led to, to uh, move your church membership here or to make a first-time profession of faith in Christ or to be baptized or make some other important public decision... We invite you to come forward while this is being played, and I'm going to be standing up here at the front to greet anyone who comes forward. I would ask most of all right now, though, to ask yourself and pray to God as to whether or not you're being the representative of Him during this Advent season that you can be, that He was truly being born anew in your spirit, in your soul during this season. Will you ask yourself that? And if you have never given yourself over to him and let, hi- let yourself be born again, we invite you forward to do that as well. But for now, if you would, just remain in a prayerful place and listen to the music, and the invitation is yours.